taking the Taliban to task today, Thursday, June 20th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Under pressure from the U.S. and others, the Taliban changed their sign at their new office in Qatar. Afghanistan objected to language that suggested the office was a rival embassy. Meanwhile, talks between the U.S. and the Taliban are on hold, but the Taliban already have a proposal for American officials, a prisoner swap. We'll hear the details. And later we speak with an Iraq vet who knew the late actor James Gandolfini. The vet says his unit in Iraq modeled themselves after Gandolfini's crew on The Sopranos. We tailored everything after Tony Soprano and you know his captains while we were over there because we were the law over there in Iraq in that time in the 04. Plus, a little sartorial advice for G8 leaders. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. You'd think if you announce talks to end a war, you already have your diplomatic ducks in a row. Well, when it comes to Afghanistan, apparently not. U.S. talks with the Taliban were supposed to begin today, but did not amid a flurry of recriminations between Kabul, Washington, and the Taliban. Mostly it's over what appears to be petty stuff, like what flag flies over the new Taliban office in Doha in Qatar. The BBC's Ali McBool was just outside that office today. So, Aleem, what on earth is going on here, and what's the issue with the flag and nameplates? Am I wrong about this being petty stuff, or is it emblematic of greater dysfunction? I think the latter is true. I mean, it, it's certainly that kind of stuff that has hit the headlines, but it is symbolic stuff. Really, this goes much, much deeper than flags and plaques. And the reason is because the third party in all of this, the Afghan government, Hamid Karzai, the president, have been very upset uh, about lots of things. But one of the things was the way the Taliban opened its office here a couple of days ago. It opened uh, a political office. And what the Afghan government had said was it did not want this to look like the inauguration of an embassy. It didn't want the Taliban to look like some kind of government in waiting. But that's what they feel precisely what happened. And the Taliban raised their flag over this building. And more than that, they had a plaque outside the building, which said, offices of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And that really, really upset President Karzai. We were briefed from uh, State Department officials yesterday that they had given assurances that those things would be taken away, the, the flag would be removed, the plaque would be removed. And we also were told by State Department officials that President Karzai was back on board and everything was still on track. That's not what we've been hearing today. First of all, we went to the building, and I'll be honest with you, I had a look around. It looked like all of those things had happened. Certainly the plaque had gone, and it looked like the flag and even the pole had gone. But we had a look through uh, a little gap in the wall, and there was the flag. They shortened the flagpole, but it's still flying. Right. I mean, Karzai is obviously upset with the way the Taliban has just kind of surged ahead and kind of claiming this whole thing. But uh, there's also this perception, not perception, the United States has been saying that this is an Afghan-led process. And to me, that would mean it's led by the Karzai government. It, how, how upset is he with that characterization that this is Afghan-led? 
Yeah, that that is one of his that is one of his key complaints. He feels that this has not been Afghan led. This has not been uh, initiated in the way he would have liked. I mean, basically, what it's about is that he feels he has not been given respect or status, uh, and that his role in bringing uh, forward peace talks uh, has not been properly acknowledged. In fact, of everything that's happened over the last two or three days, uh, and given that now Hamid Karzai is not just upset with the Taliban, but with the Americans as well, such that he's not cooperating with them currently, you know, out of all of this, it's the Taliban who are, are almost the only ones who've done well out of this. The damage has already been done. They've already achieved what they crave, which is a bit of legitimacy. They've set up this office is here. They've said, you know, we're open for business. Come and deal with us here internationally. And, you know, that can't be taken away now. So what happens next? I mean, U.S. delegates are already in Doha. When when will they meet their Taliban counterparts? Look, all eyes right now are on Kabul because, uh, as I say, Hamid Karzai listed a long list uh, of grievances, a long list of things that he wanted to be dealt with before he came to the negotiating table. But what he did say was that he he was fine about American officials and Taliban officials meeting bilaterally if, if this was not about the bigger thing, if it was not about peace talks. The BBC's Ali Mekbul in Doha. Well, the talks in Qatar may be on hold, but the Taliban have already presented the United States with a proposal. They want to exchange a U.S. soldier they've been holding captive for five senior Taliban operatives being held by the U.S. at Guantanamo. The soldier is U.S. Army Sergeant Boe Bergdahl from Idaho. He disappeared from his base in southeastern Afghanistan in June of 2009 and is believed to be held in Pakistan. Kathy Gannon covers Afghanistan and Pakistan for the Associated Press. She's currently in Islamabad. Gannon was the first to learn about the possible deal during an exclusive interview she had with a Taliban official named Shaheen Suhail. I spoke with a senior Taliban person at their office in Doha, a Taliban that uh, I have known for quite some time that I knew during the Taliban government between 96 and 2001, before the uh, U.S.-led coalition attacked Afghanistan. And he said during a conversation that we had, an exclusive conversation that we had uh, today on the telephone, we were talking, I had heard that there might be some uh, Afghans released from Guantanamo. And I asked him about this. And as we were discussing it, uh, the details of what the Taliban were prepared to do, which was to swap uh, Sergeant Bowie Bergdahl for the five senior Taliban officials, or however you like to describe them, that have been in Guantanamo Bay. Since we've been speaking, we've uh, learned from uh, sources in Washington that uh, there seems to be a welcome to this idea of a prisoner exchange. And uh, tell me, though, what do you know of any of these five men who are at Guantanamo? They're a mix. Some of them are, I mean, one is a former intelligence official. Um, They were uh, senior people with the Taliban government. Herhua was a uh, governor of Herat. He also was actually a friend of uh, Hamid Karzai's uh, in another life. I certainly would describe him as senior Taliban. I don't think they are probably any more dangerous than any of the Taliban who have joined with the government or who have been released. They have all said that they would like to go to Doha, apparently, not to Afghanistan. So they are clearly not interested in going back to the battlefield, or at least it would seem that way from the earlier involvement of them in the talks. 
Several years ago, the U.S. and uh, the Taliban discussed prisoner exchanges, but uh, Afghan President Hamid Karzai seemed to put the kibosh on it. What's different this time around? I don't know that President Karzai won't try to stop it again this time, because again, it would be that they come to Doha. But perhaps what is different is that President Karzai has accepted the uh, office of the Taliban in Doha. So he might be willing to accept their release as part of a prisoner exchange as a gesture to move things forward. The way Shaheen Suhail put it, the Taliban spokesman in Doha, is that they want the prisoner exchange to be the first issue or the first uh, first point of the agenda. They want that settled, and then they will move on from there to build bridges, as he put it, to go forward and to set an agenda that presumably all sides hope will lead to some sort of a resolution or some sort of an agreement that will allow for some peaceful transition after 2014 and the end to combat international combat troops in Afghanistan. Kathy Gannon is the special regional correspondent for the Associated Press in Afghanistan and Pakistan. She's also the author of Eye for Infidel. Kathy, thanks so very much. Thank you, Marco, very much. Our next story focuses on a religious minority group whose members have faced serious problems in Pakistan and other countries. They are Ahmadi Muslims, and they are often fiercely persecuted by other Muslims for departing from traditional Islamic doctrine. Some Ahmadis have sought refuge here in the U.S., where their brand of Islam is becoming more visible. Roxandra Guidi sent us this report from Los Angeles. On a recent afternoon, a Beverly Hills hotel lobby is packed. It's like a rock star's in town with all the security. But instead, the bustle is for Hadrat Misra Masrur Ahmad, an Islamic spiritual leader. In front of clicking photographers, he delivers his message of peace. Say my job is to extend the message of Islam, the message of true Islam. Ahmed denounces violence in the name of religion. Jihad, or holy war, is a peaceful quest he preaches. His beliefs seem easy to embrace, but not everyone agrees. Ahmed, who lives in London, represents the Ahmadiyya Muslim movement worldwide. It's unknown to most Americans, but in the Muslim world, it's known for departing from mainstream Islam by believing that an Indian man, Hadrat Misra Ghulam Ahmad, is the Messiah, that he's already arrived, and that there will be no second coming of Jesus. It defies the Prophet Muhammad's teachings, and that can leave Ahmadis condemned as infidels and targeted by extremists abroad. I have no doubt that God will say, you and your holiness, please do. Thank you so much for your work. In the U.S., Washington welcomes Ahmad and his sex-peaceful image. He's also encouraging to Ahmadis who've moved or fled to America after facing persecution abroad. In 1984, Pakistan banned Ahmadis from identifying themselves as Muslims. Then in 2010, attacks against Ahmadi mosques in Lahore killed almost 100 followers of the faith. Ahmadis represent only a tiny fraction of the overall Muslim population in the U.S., but it's a growing community with about 3,000 Ahmadis in Southern California. Imam Shamshad Nasser, who came to the hotel to see his religious leader, is part of America's new wave of Ahmadis. He hosts a radio program in L.A. and speaks about his faith with evangelical seal. As the sect grows here, Nasser says, Americans will embrace his community's strong rejection of terrorism. The Constitution of the United States is very close to the Islamic laws. Because Islam is the champion which provides peace and freedom for each and every person. 
36-year-old Mansoor Ishfaq has also settled in California. He says he was a closeted Ahmadi in Pakistan and went through a religious awakening here after arriving as a student in 2001. There are at least four Ahmadi mosques in the area where Ishfaq can practice his faith openly. When I came here and, and then I applied for asylum that, you know, because I came to know that for me it's not possible to go back. You know, if I go back, you know, same persecution with my mother went through. At one of the Ahmadi mosques, the call to prayer begins. An imam tells Ishfaq to speak about the positive aspects of Ahmadiyya. But when asked to describe what makes his faith different, Ishfaq stumbles a bit. Ahmadiyya, he says simply, is a peace-loving Islam. It teaches you to, that it's okay to live with and accept other religions. I, I could not probably be able to get it as, as a Sunni Muslim, maybe. You know. Probably in Pakistan, it's, it's very difficult to get it. Ishfaq explains that it'd be difficult for Sunnis to get or understand that Islam is a peaceful faith. But it's also views like this that present other Muslims as more prone to violence that don't help build ties between Ahmadis and other Muslims. Shaquille Saeed leads the Shura Council, a group that unites mosques and Muslim groups in Southern California. They want to maintain their distinct identity and yet be part of the But in order for them to be recognized by mainstream Muslim community, I guess they have to uh, give up on their core principles that their messiah is not messiah, their messiah is just another good person. But this won't likely happen anytime soon. As Ahmadis grow in numbers in the West, they're increasingly viewing themselves as leading the revival of a peaceful Islam. For The World, I'm Ruxandra Guidi, Los Angeles. Ruxandra's story is part of our Global Nation series, Stories of a Changing America and Its People. For more stories, including our recent profile of a man who, after being deported to Mexico, had to fight to win back custody of his children. That story and many more are at theworld.org slash globalnation. Still ahead on The World, the vague way forward for musicians in Mali. This is PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype, and it's offensive. And you're the last person I would want to perpetuate it. I got the news last night, coincidentally, just after watching an old episode of The Sopranos. James Gandolfini, age 51, was dead in Rome. The Sopranos was an incredible piece of television and made a name for Gandolfini, as well as HBO. But I want to focus on another HBO project that Gandolfini was also the head of, Alive Day Memories, Home from Iraq, is the title. The concept of the documentary was simple. Highlight vets who were seriously wounded in Iraq and hear what it's like to adjust to the physical and emotional toll of those injuries, really digging down into what makes up post-traumatic stress disorder. Retired Marine Staff Sergeant John Jones was one of the vets. He lost both of his legs when the Humvee he was in was attacked. Here he is being interviewed by James Gandolfini about what happened after he was stateside. So what's the hardest thing? You're sitting there and, and I guess your wife and your kids came up and were they there with you a lot of the time? Well, my, well, I didn't want my kids to see me in that, that way at that point. 
I wanted to, them to see me up and able to move around and, you know, do dad things with them, you know. Uh, and that was, that was really hard to see my kids look at me in, in that way of like, what happened, you know. So my daughter, she would get, draw pictures and dad has, you know, she'd cut one leg off, you know, in her picture and then, then it would become from a cutoff to a robot to, you know, so they, they call me dad with robot legs, you know. An excerpt from the documentary A Live Day Memories, Home from Iraq. James Gandolfini didn't just do the interviews for A Live Day Memories, he produced it as well. Staff Sergeant John Jones joins me now. And Staff Sergeant Jones, what did it mean to you to have James Gandolfini even want to make this film? Well, for myself, you know, to give you a little backstory about the military, we watched The Sopranos, especially with my unit, and uh, we tailored everything after Tony Soprano and you know, his captains while we were over there because we were the law over there in Iraq in that time in uh, 04. And uh, our captain was uh, Tony Soprano, you know, and our uh, lieutenants were the captains and everybody else were the workhorses. So whenever I met James at the film, and I really wanted to say thank you to him for highlighting, you know, the issues that veterans have whenever they come back from Iraq or Afghanistan with, you know, severe injuries and life-changing injuries. And, um, you know, James was a very humble person. And he said, you know what, I do this because people need to know. People need to understand that, you know, these guys go out there and girls go out there every single day on a volunteer basis. And we take uh, for granted what uh, we have here. And he was a silent supporter. And then he became more of a really big supporter of veterans and veterans issues. Did you feel uh, Gandolfini was rare? I mean, how many people in the United States were interested in hearing about your stories about these injuries in Iraq? Well, I think it wouldn't have gotten uh, as much traction as it would have if uh, James didn't do it, because James, he was at the the height of his stardom, I guess you could say, with Judy the Sopranos, and, you know, he was very passionate about it. And I don't think that it would have got as much traction and visibility as it did if he hadn't done it. So what was it like to converse with this man who, in in so many of our minds, uh, I imagine, I mean, you watch The Sopranos in Iraq, as you said, in so many of our minds, is a brutal mafia boss. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't at all. I mean, he was uh, your more down-to-earth man. He did not you know, portray himself as a movie star, as a celebrity, as, yes, he was a working actor, but he was a human being. And he was passionate about family. He's passionate about his country. And he's passionate about the people that defended his country to provide what he had. And, you know, even after the film, James and I and his family became friends. Did that friendship happen because of veterans' issues? Or was there something else that you and he connected around? No, I think it was just because, you know, I was real and he was real. And he connected with real people, not uh, fictional people, I guess you could say. Um, you know, we befriended each other very quickly after the film, and it just became a, a ongoing relationship. It wasn't because he was a celebrity. And, you know, and I even told him, I said, I don't care that you're a celebrity. I just want to have a scar with you and bullshit. I'm sorry, I can't say that, can I? <laughs> I mean, he was just a normal guy. He loved to uh, to hang out. He loved to converse, and he liked to hear stories. And um, 
you know, after the film aired, I contacted James personally and I said, James, I've got a favor for you. And that was probably the one only favor that I ever asked James to do. What was it? To come to Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. I was working there after I retired. And uh, I said that these guys don't get all of the visibility from the celebrities and from people that really care, like the East Coast and Walter Reed and Bethesda National Naval Medical Center at the time did. And he says, yeah, what do you want? I said, can you bring a couple of the crew down to Brook Army? This is where the burn patients are seen as well as some amputees. And can you come out here and uh, visit with them? And when you say crew, you mean crew from The Sopranos? Crew from The Sopranos. Mm. So Tony Sirico came, you know, and a couple of other people, you know, came as well. He flew out on a private jet, came into San Antonio and spent, you know, a full couple of days down at the hospital seeing as many patients and seeing as many veterans as he possibly could. When was the last time you spoke with uh, James Gandolfini? Uh, last month. I was actually in California at his house last month with my uh, with my brother. And, uh, you know, it was we were planning on uh, getting together a camp trip uh, and a fishing trip up in Colorado where I actually reside. Um, mm. You know, it's just uh, it was very hard to see that man um, pass. He was a good, good man and a good patriot. Retired Staff Sergeant John Jones is a Special Projects and Development Manager with the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation. Thanks very much for your time and for telling us about your relationship with James Gandolfini. really appreciate it. Thank you. Now a small item out of Iraq. Lately, the news there has been mostly about explosions and casualties, but this is about a sign of recovery. Volvo has just opened a large operation in Iraq in the southern province of Basra. It's a high-tech service facility to provide maintenance for Volvo and American Mack trucks. A hundred Iraqi engineers and workers will staff the operation. Volvo trained them overseas. The truck market in Iraq is still pretty slim. Just 1,500 to 2,000 are sold a year. But Volvo hopes this facility will improve those numbers. You're listening to The World on PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, the revival of a once sacred grain in Mexico. The Spaniards didn't like the rituals, and so they decided to abolish the cultivation of amaranth. Even Hernán Cortés said that he would cut the hands of those who planted it. So amaranth was lost. We'll hear why amaranth is making a comeback now. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. There are tens of thousands of edible plant species in the world, but today only three of these make up most of the plant protein in human diets, rice, wheat, and corn. And it turns out these same three crops are among the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Researchers are working to change that, but what about alternative crops? As part of our What's for Lunch series on food and climate, reporter Sam Eaton takes us to Mexico, where an ancient Aztec staple is making a comeback. 
In some ways, this is a tale of two seeds, corn and amaranth. Both were domesticated long ago in southern Mexico's Tehuacan Valley. Both were pounded into flour to make tamales and tortillas. Along with beans, the two were the staples that allowed the Aztec empire to prosper. The difference is corn went on to become the cornerstone of the world food system, while amaranth went mostly into the history books. Amaranth's descent into obscurity began nearly five centuries ago with the arrival of the Spanish and the Catholic Church, still a powerful presence here in Mexico. For the Aztecs, it was considered a sacred grain. Amaranth was so sacred, says biochemist Mary Delano, that the seeds were mixed with human blood in offerings to the Aztec gods. And the Spaniards didn't like the rituals. And so they decided to abolish the cultivation of amaranth. Even Hernán Cortés said that he would cut the hands of those who planted it. So amaranth was lost. Setting the stage for Mexico, and the world for that matter, to become the land of corn, something Delano hopes to change. Amaranth has to get back to Mexico. It's Mexico, tierra de amaranth. Mexico, land of amaranth. That's the name Delano chose for the nonprofit she founded to help impoverished women grow amaranth in small kitchen gardens. Santo esté en esta... Ironically, a Catholic priest was part of the entourage on the day I joined Delano for a multi-village tour in Querétaro, north of Mexico City. Rather than condemning this pagan seed, the priest was blessing new rainwater tanks that make it possible to grow amaranth year-round. And that's important, Delano says, because according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, amaranth packs more protein than any other plant on Earth. She says there's a reason NASA selected it as part of its astronauts' diets. It's even better than milk. It's also a substitute of meat and a substitute of eggs. Amaranth leaves are also edible, packing more iron, vitamin C, and calcium than spinach. And here in Mexico, Delano's effort to revive amaranth is getting some help from the climate. In the arid Tehuacan Valley, where farmers first domesticated amaranth and corn, 51-year-old Juan Nunez says the weather's no longer reliable. He says every day brings a new risk. That's why people are leaving their fields. They just aren't profitable anymore. For corn farmers, that is. But Nunez has been growing amaranth for the last 30 years, and he's doing okay. Nunez says during a bad drought a few years back, corn farmers had no harvest, but he says his amaranth did fine. Nunez sells part of his harvest through a cooperative that processes organic amaranth into flour, breakfast cereal, and snack foods. More than a 1,000 small farmers have joined the group. Of course, corn is still king in Mexico. But amaranth advocates hope to narrow the gap. At a recent meeting in Mexico City, a handful of growers, academics, and public health officials discussed efforts to promote amaranth as a new staple in the global food chain. Eduardo Espitia with the National Institute of Forestry, Agriculture, and Animal Husbandry Research says it will take some work. Espitia says amaranth is still relatively primitive. The seeds are tiny and hard to plant. But he says if researchers had even a fraction of the resources devoted to corn, they could develop more marketable varieties. And with rising temperatures, Espitia says amaranth's ability to withstand triple-digit heat makes that prospect all the more appealing. 
A nutritionist say it would also be a boon for the country's health. Josefina Morales is with the National Institute of Medical Sciences and Nutrition. She says the country is struggling with both malnutrition and obesity, in part because people have abandoned their traditional foods. This dual crisis has become a big priority for Mexico's government. It recently included amaranth as a strategic resource in its national crusade against hunger. But making it available and getting people to eat it are different challenges. That's not lost on activist Mary Delano. Back in Querétaro, my tour of the amaranth gardens ends with a village feast. These are the chips. And so these are out of amaranth. Yes. So, in a country where a meal isn't considered a meal without a tortilla, Delano is slowly winning over converts to her amaranth-fortified versions of classic Mexican recipes. Beans are wonderful, and maize is wonderful, but a tortilla with maize and amaranth is totally different. By itself, amaranth isn't all that tasty, but adding it to corn doesn't change the flavor of a tortilla. And the combination of the two makes a complete protein with the nutritional quality of meat. Delano says sometimes she feels that her efforts are like trying to build a house on the ocean. But with each new cistern and kitchen garden, she sees a movement gradually growing. Maybe little, little seeds here, here and there, and will eventually be everywhere. And they might need to be. According to one recent study, Mexico stands to lose up to a third of its corn-centered agricultural production to climate change by 2080, which means that with or without government support, amaranth might well become once again a grain of strategic, if not sacred, importance for the world. I'm Sam Eaton, Querétaro, Mexico. Our What's for Lunch series is part of Food for Nine Billion, a two-year project of Homelands Productions and the Center for Investigative Reporting with broadcast partners PRI's The World, PBS NewsHour, and American Public Media's Marketplace. All summer long, we'll be exploring how the changing climate is impacting our choices for lunch. And we want to hear from you. Maybe right this moment you're planning a trip to your local farmer's market or you're thinking twice about selecting that rare fish on the menu. Send us an Instagram with how the environment is affecting your dining decisions. Just include the hashtag what's for lunch. That's what's the number four lunch. What's for lunch. Okay, so something's missing in our GeoQuiz today. The leaders of a group of eight nations got together this week at a five-star resort in Elliniskillen, Northern Ireland. That's the leaders of the U.S., the U.K., Russia, Germany, France, Italy, Canada, and Japan. They mostly talked about the war in Syria, though there wasn't much agreement on how to end it. At night, they dined on some local fare, Kilkeel crab, northern Irish beef, and later an apple crumble with Irish whiskey custard. But something was not there, something that's usually front and center at G8 summits. We're not talking about good cheer. No pictures of Barack Obama and Vladimir Putin on the sidelines don't exactly exude friendly feelings. But the photos do offer a clue as to what's missing. You've got a few minutes to go check them out. The answer is coming up in a few.
Confession now, I always thought it would be so cool to have wax wings like Icarus. But living out an ancient Greek myth doesn't really make much sense, especially that one. Kind of risky. There is movement of modern-day Greeks, though, who follow the ancient religion of the Greek gods. They yearn to bring back the pre-Christian values, philosophy, and ideas. They view Christianity as a foreign invader. Every year on the summer solstice, a few thousand of them get together on Mount Olympus to worship the Greek gods. Reporter Matthew Brunwasser went to their latest solstice celebration. Six runners are fastening straps and buckles, putting on ancient Greek battle gear, preparing to run six miles up Mount Olympus. The run marks the beginning of the annual Prometheia, the three-day event celebrates the ancient Greek myth of Prometheus, who stole fire from the gods to give humans civilization. Zervis Kostas says he's running to show his pride in his Greek forefathers. Just to pay respect to my holy ancestors, just for that. To bring out the flame of Prometheus, I feel it is a personal honor for me. Even with their shields and long metal spears clanking as they run down the highway, passers-by hardly seem to notice. It's a telling sign of how far the modern Hellenes have come towards social acceptance. They've been meeting here every year since 1996. The next day at a camp set up in the shadow of Mount Olympus, the participants are relaxing. Some sell philosophy books, CDs, food and jewelry. The followers are an odd mix. Leftists who hate the Greek church for its political power. Nationalists who resent Christianity for crushing Greekness back in the days of the New Testament. And New Agey types who revere the ancient. What they all share is an attraction to the values of the ancients. Love of knowledge, science, rationality, and honor. They reject religious or societal dogma. Sculptor Exequius Trivolidis explains that the ancient Greek religion of the Twelve Gods is not a faith in the sense of offering a set of beliefs. It's not a recipe book. It's more like a way of showing you the path. By the path, might have thorns, might have rocks, might be uphill, might be downhill. You find your own pathway. And that's Greek religion or approach to the divine. Your own path through philosophy. And you make philosophy practical into life. Dodecathion followers don't actually pray to Zeus, Hera, and the others. Rather, the deities are symbolic representations. Take the epic story of Odysseus. When the hero returns home from the decade-long Trojan War, he finds his house full of men wooing his wife Penelope, who's been faithfully waiting for his return. The hero watches patiently from the shadows. The narrator says there should be no mercy for those who behaved like parasites, comparing them to the politicians ruling modern Greece. Then Odysseus shoots them with his arrows. After the show closes with Prometheus giving humanity fire, the Hellenes dance in frolic under the moonlight. It's a joyful gathering but participants are motivated by a search for meaning as much as a good party. Jeremy Upshaw has an unusual perspective. He came to visit from Stillwater, Oklahoma, and heard about the gathering online. It's uh, more deep, more philosophical than I thought it would be. I thought it would be very, uh, you know, just ceremonial. You picture the uh, olive branches and the, the togas. But, uh, spiritually, you know, it feels like there's uh, a strong energy here. Very good energy, 
Everybody's peaceful, kind. The return of the Hellenes movement was founded by a philosophy professor, Trifon Olympus. He says that the Greek media and the Orthodox Christian Church used to demonize the Dodecaphion and its followers until they realized the attention actually helped the Hellenes. Uh, now they have understood that uh, we are not dangerous uh, and we are not pagans and satans. We are peaceful people and uh, come with ideas that are useful for society. So they, they have accepted us. According to Olympus, today's high-tech society and the crisis in Europe are shaking Western civilization from its stupor. People are starting to see the integrity and stability of true Hellenic values, he says, and the movement will continue to gain steam. Olympus says the ancient Hellenes are offering a model to move beyond the failed ideologies of the past in favor of ideas tried and tested millennia ago. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Litohoro, Greece. You can see pictures of modern Greeks dressed up in ancient-looking tunics as they pay homage to those centuries-old values and gods. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. Now let's get back to the present and our geo-quiz today. We were looking for something missing from the G8 summit that just wrapped up in Northern Ireland, something that wasn't there. The answer is neckties. This year, for the first time, the G8 leaders went tie-less. All the male world leaders in the group, and they were mostly men, had literally received the memo, and it stated that dress would be smart casual, even in the official photo, jackets, shirts, but no ties. So how come? Peter York is a British cultural commentator and author. Peter, no neckties for the big leaders of the world. Are they really trying to tell us that they're just like us? What's the message? They're trying to tell us that they're honest. They're trying to tell us that they're not silver-tongued devils. They're trying to tell us that they're like home folks. And above all, they're trying to tell us that they're younger than they are. Uh huh. And do you think it worked? No. Of course <laughs> it doesn't work. These are the people who live by the most formal schedules in the world, with the most formal language, with communiques and special papers and position papers and a funny way of talking that no normal human being has. And there they are pretending to be just home folks. You youthify. People think they youthify themselves by taking off their ties and opening one button. The only person who looked good was your glorious president because A, he looks good anyway and B, he's got a stylist and he knows which kind of shirt you wear when you're taking your tie off. You're in a BBC studio in London uh, and the BBC used to require its newsreaders to give bulletins in full evening dress. What kind of tie uh, do you have on right now? I have a very nice dark blue knitted silk one. Paired with? Paired with a British Imperial linen, pale linen uh, jacket. But look around the newsroom where you are right now. Anybody yes. else have a tie on? No, of course not. <laughs> of course <laughs> Lots not. change over time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Would you advise an up-and-coming politician to ditch their tie? Not on a permanent basis. You'd think, you'd think they were lying to you. Sometimes they wear ties, sometimes they don't. But the G8 is important stuff. So, and it's sort, of, it's sort of juvenile to think that ditching a tie is going to kind of change the world. Well, Peter, thanks for putting on your tie today and keeping up appearances. I know it's radio and nobody can see us, but uh, we no, certainly No, but you appreciate. have to do it. <laughs> Peter York, fashion commentator, thanks so much for your time. My great pleasure. This is The World on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World.
Music from Tikenja Fakoli, one of the musical activists residing in the West African nation of Mali. We haven't checked in with the news from Mali for a while, and there's a lot going on there. Here's a quick recap. Last year, rebels from the Tuareg ethnic group in the north rose up against the national government based in the south. Then Islamic extremists jumped into the fray and declared northern Mali their turf and imposed Sharia law. That included a ban on music. France intervened, you'll recall, sending in troops and routing the Islamists from cities like Timbuktu and Gao. And this week, an agreement was signed between the government and the Tuareg rebels that will allow the Malian army to secure the north in advance of national elections next month. Sounds like Mali's getting back to normal. We want a revolution. Young people revolution. Intelligent revolution. But in many ways, things remain uneasy in Mali, especially for average citizens and for the country's normally vibrant music scene. Andy Morgan used to manage the exciting Malian Tuareg band Tenariwen. Now he's exclusively a writer and journalist, and he's just published a report titled Music, Culture, and Conflict in Mali. Andy told me that even though the Islamists have been pushed out and the ban they'd imposed on music has been lifted, tension remains high in Mali. The problem is that music, as you might imagine, depends on a functioning society. It depends on the ability of people to conduct their daily lives, their daily ceremonies that mark the passages of life, be they baptisms, weddings, all that kind of thing. Now, the problem is in in Mali in general, and especially in the North, is that normal life is taking a long time to come back, basically. One of the main reasons is that when, you know, Mali descended into civil war, a lot of people just up sticks and left. And that was also true of a lot of musicians. And so you've got cities like Gao or Kidal or Timbuktu that are still less than 50% of the population that they had before the rebellion. You know, so obviously, you know, music depends on audiences. It also depends on audiences that feel good enough and safe enough to go out and enjoy themselves. And if you're in a constant state of uncertainty, of economic depression, etc., those feelings are hard to come by. You know, Malians had never seen the atrocities that uh, the world saw happen in the North. Music band, thieves getting their hands chopped off, women forced to wear the veil. I mean, the stories are abundant. Do you think the unprecedented appearance and actions of, of these extremists succeeded in intimidating musicians from really opposing them in song? I think, unfortunately, they did. I mean, basically, the strategy that most musicians employed was either to leave the whole, re- you know, leave northern Mali, which I think at least 80% of them did. The ones who remained, I have talked to a few musicians who were, who stayed in northern Mali throughout the whole 10-month Islamist occupation. And, you know, what's really strange is the, the thing they said to me is that they just didn't feel like playing music it would have been very dangerous to kind of make a point of it because uh, they would have faced certainly a few days in prison. So what happened is that they tend to either play incredibly discreetly at home with their doors and their shutters closed, or another thing that a lot of them did if they were at home was just to go out into the bush where your isolation protects you. And uh, some of the Tuareg musicians from the northeast, from the Kidal region, 
uh, have families deep in the desert and they would go out and visit them. But even there, I mean, one of the worst things about this occupation, as far as I understand, is the way it has really poisoned personal relations. And apparently the general level of trust between human beings has declined quite dramatically. Mm. And you just do not know who to trust anymore, even members of your own family you've got to be careful about. Yeah, that's also very scary. So tell us what the significance is of this treaty that was struck with the Tuareg. I know it uh, opens the door to Malian troops uh, going in, but that's maybe not what the Tuareg want. Have you heard from any Tuareg musicians about how they feel about this deal? I haven't spoken to any musicians, but my feeling is, is that this is a treaty of convenience, really. In signing the treaty, the uh, Tuareg leaders have agreed to uh, respect Mali's territorial integrity, which goes absolutely against what they were saying until, you know, recently. It also states that they respect the fact that Mali is a secular state. And one of the signatories is this guy, Al-Habas Agintala, who was with the Islamist faction in the rebellion. So I think they're saying, we need to do this. We need to play ball for the moment. The pressure is on. If we don't, they'll just send the Malian army into Kidal and there'll be a bit of a bloodbath and we don't want that. Better to make our peace with Mali and see if we can basically negotiate some kind of autonomy along the same model as the autonomous region of Kurdistan in northern Iraq, which is often sort of stated as a model, and uh, see if that can uh, you know, bring us what we need, which is development, uh, better schools, better hospitals, better water facilities, that kind of thing. Now, you devote a part of one chapter to discussing what the late guitarist Ali Farkature would have made of this extremist uprising in the north of Mali last year. And uh, like I've heard from a number of people, there seems to be a sense that he would have gotten his hunting rifle and gone after them. Whatever would have happened. I'm just wondering, is there somebody like Ali Farkature, a musician who represents kind of a leader figure as Mali moves ahead? Not one that unifies all Malian musicians, but certainly within certain strands of Malian music, there are figures who definitely stand in the forefront, I would say. A good example is the reggae singer from uh, Côte d'Ivoire, Tikinja Fakoli, who's a huge figure in Mali. He's based in Bamako. A lot of his songs deal with, with all the issues that led to this mess that Mali's in, like corruption and et cetera, et cetera. He's one. There's uh, rap groups as well, like Tata Pound or Les Sofas de la Public, you know, who've taken a really, really clear stand uh, during this crisis. But there's another young singer, a female singer-songwriter called Fatu, Fatumata Jirwara is her full name. Now, she's really coming to the fore as an amazing young talent. Uh, she's playing at this huge Glastonbury Festival here in England in a week's time. And uh, she got a large group of, of Malian musicians from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds together back in February to record a song called Maliko, which means peace. I think she's someone to watch, not so much as a leader, but as someone who can really organise musical activism, you might be able to call it, confederate musicians together. Well, we'll go out with a bit of Fatu, Fatu Mata Jawara, and uh, thanks Andy Morgan very much for your time. Andy Morgan, writer and journalist, who's just published a series of reports titled Music, Culture and Conflict in Mali. Andy, thanks a lot. Thank you. My pleasure.
That's our program today from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. You can always find me on Twitter at Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. By the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International